Thank you, everyone. As part of the ACG podcast series, I'm delighted to have Dr. Elmanzer here to talk about the latest ACG guidelines on the ability structures. My name is Jasmohan Bajaj. I'm professor of medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University and Richmond VA Medical Center. On behalf of myself and my other co-editor, Dr. Millie Long from University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, I'm delighted to have Dr. Elmanzer here who is in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology in the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Uh, welcome, Dr. Elmanzer. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for putting together with your group a fantastic stricture guideline, which will be very useful to our readers. Um, so let's start with a few questions. What do you think are the overall basic principles when approaching ability stricture? And remember that our audience listening and reading are not all advanced biliary specialists. So I think a few generalities would be uh, in order here. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast and thank you to the ACG for the opportunity to write this guideline. As you mentioned, I worked with a group of really outstanding co-authors and I think we're really proud of this work and we're hopeful that it'll, it'll be helpful, not only to the therapeutic endoscopist, but as you mentioned, to gastroenterologists and even primary care physicians as well. So the, the way we tried to structure it was that, you know, we felt the most logical way to approach it and the most important principles in evaluating and managing this patient population pertain to two concepts. Number one is diagnosis and number two is drainage. And so ensuring that the patient doesn't have cancer or if they do, establishing that diagnosis expediently so that they can move on down their care pathway. And once that has been established, determining what the best approach is to restoring the flow of bile back into the duodenum. So the other line across which we divided the guideline has to do with the location of a stricture, because there's substantial differences between the evaluation and management of strictures that are in the extrahepatic biliary system versus at the hilum of the liver. And so essentially, we focused the document around diagnosis and drainage as it pertains to extrahepatic and perihilar strictures. Thank you so much for that clarification. That's really important to put into context as we move around the, the guidelines and the strictures. And it's easier then for our readers and listeners to put together in their mind what specific recommendations or concepts belong to which specific quadrant, if you would. So there's a lot of discussion about EUS and FNA and versus ERCP. And one of the things which I found was particularly interesting is your recommendation that EUS with FNA or B versus ERCP in the initial management of the pancreatic mass. Now, is this relatively a new concept or is this something that has caught favor recently and could you go behind the rationale? Yeah, so no, this has actually been fairly well established. As you know, the traditional mainstay for diagnosing biliary strictures, whether or not there's an associated pancreatic mass, had been ERCP with some form of introductal sampling, which is typically brush cytology. But over time, it became clear that brush cytology alone, or even in combination with other forms of introductal sampling, not quite there in terms of diagnostic accuracy. So the performance characteristics of those modalities are relatively limited. And in parallel, over the last two decades, there have been uh, you know, major advances in EUS technology and ability to acquire tissue and so forth. So in the presence of a pancreatic mass or another malignant process that's causing a biliary stricture, something that can be uh, observed, can be viewed via EUS, there's actually no question based on existing literature. And again, this has been in evolution for quite some time that fine needle sampling either by aspiration or biopsy is far superior to introductal sampling at the time of ERCP. 
the the more difficult scenario for both endoscopists and patients is when there's a stricture in the absence of a of a visible mass. And that still remains a major challenge in clinical practice. And, and the so-called indeterminate biliary stricture is still, you know, one of the, the sort of prevailing challenges that endoscopists face on a regular basis. And that's where, you know, we tried to move the needle a little bit in terms of our recommendation, but but really we need uh, better diagnostic modalities and tools for that subset of patients. Thank you. I and mean, I think this is interesting for our uh, listeners because you want to, if you have the capability of doing this, EUS and FNA is fine. You, what you don't want to do is to actually, if possible, avoid the DRCP, is that what you're saying, and refer to someone who can actually do this, then actually go in and try and do the brushing. Is that yeah, I mean, I think, and, and this comes through in one of our key concepts, which which is this phenomenon that we see at least quite a bit in academic medical centers, where a patient presents with clear evidence of a biliary stricture. And sort of just to, you know, to get into the, the nuance of your point, I think, generally speaking, if a patient does not need biliary decompression, if the only purpose of, of endoscopic intervention is for diagnosis in the context of a pancreatic mass, then of course there'd be no rationale to do an ERCP because that brings with it risk and relatively limited diagnostic yield, whereas EUS is much lower risk with much higher diagnostic yield. I think the question becomes a little bit more complicated when the patient presents with clear biliary obstruction with cholestatic LFTs and symptoms and also needs a concurrent diagnosis. And at least in academic medical centers, we see a lot of patients who initial presentation obviously something's wrong, but they're not under tremendous duress. You know, they're symptomatic, but not highly symptomatic. And they end up getting an ERCP for biliary decompression and a brushing. But more often than not, that brushing is not going to be diagnostic. And so they end up getting referred to a tertiary center to get another procedure that involves an EUS FNA to make a diagnosis. And if the diagnosis is made, then another ERCP to exchange the plastic stent for a metallic stent, which is more appropriate in this context. So the patient ends up getting a mandatory, you know, two-procedure pathway when, you know, if the patient is not terribly symptomatic from, from a patient experience point of view and a cost uh, and risk point of view, it might make more sense just to transfer, refer the patient to a place that can do both at once establish a diagnosis and place the appropriate prosthesis during one anesthetic session. Now, of course, if a patient presents and they're sick and there's question of cholangitis or they're highly symptomatic, then biliary decompression is justified to do a brushing at the same time. If you get lucky, great. Otherwise, you know, you've, you've done the right thing for the patient. But the majority of patients actually present and they're okay at initial, you know, when they, they first encounter the healthcare system. So I think there is a little bit of time to coordinate um, and consolidate those procedures. Thank you. In addition to, you know, doing the, just the brushing, the guideline goes into a fair amount of detail and it's quite interesting. So I encourage our listeners to read that in a little bit details. What are the modalities that you would recommend in an ideal world to be, to accompany brushing, to increase the yield of these malignancies once the patient has reached you for an extrahepatic biliary stricture? And so, as mentioned, if there is a pancreatic mass, then then EUS should be sort of the standard. EUS with fine needle sampling should be a standard. But in the absence of the mass, you know, as mentioned, the traditional approach has been brushing alone. And, and this is one place in which we felt like we were able to move the needle in clinical practice uh, based on existing evidence is that, you know, typically brushing alone has been employed, but now we know that what's called multimodality sampling. So using brushing plus another modality at the time of the ERCP, you know, it's not perfect, but it definitely increases yield. And so the main ones that you would consider employing in parallel with brushing during that index ERCP 
are introductal forceps biopsies, for example. So you can, you can do a biliary sphincterotomy. And in m most cases, you can advance a forceps up into the duct under fluoroscopic guidance to obtain direct biopsies. And often we use standard luminal GI forceps, which, you know, can acquire decent chunks of tissue. What's become, of course, very popular at referral centers, at least, is cholangioscopy. So to place a camera up the duct, visualize the stricture directly, and that might help target the sort of more malignant and potentially high yield appearing portions of, of the narrowing and so forth. And and there are other things, of course, like fluorescence in situ hybridization and so forth. And we go into more detail on the, on the varying modalities in the document. But I think the major sort of diagnostic principle here is even at the time of the first ERCP, the guideline aims to encourage endoscopists to not only rely on brushing alone, but to add at least a second, maybe even a third modality during that first ERCP in the best interest of patients, because obviously the higher the diagnostic yield, the less likely they are to undergo additional potentially risky procedures. Thanks for that clarification. As an aside, uh, I have noted with increasing dismay that even with the second and third technique, the yield is still nowhere close to being as acceptable as you would want it to be, correct? Yeah. Uh, and so that's absolutely true. And, and as I mentioned earlier, that's sort of one of the main challenges in ERSP practice is the indeterminate biliary stricture. And it, it, despite multimodality sampling, to your point, often the diagnostic yield is not anywhere near, for example, what we expect from EUS FNA. There's a whole bunch of technologies that are, could be de in, deployed in parallel to help maximize that yield. But unfortunately, we're nowhere near where we want to be. And so, you know, of course, what's on the horizon, you know, is of course, like in every other area of gastroenterology and medicine is artificial intelligence. And uh, there are several groups, including my friends and colleagues at the Mayo Clinic who have done good work in terms of applying artificial intelligence and cholangioscopic image analysis to try to, in, in some way, remove move the human element, right? You know, so there are malignancies, including hepatocellular carcinoma that are now diagnosed or can be diagnosed on the basis of radiographic imaging alone. And so that precedent exists. And so will there be a time in which endoscopy is a tool to acquire quantitative information that can be plugged into a machine learning or AI algorithm that will provide a definitive diagnosis? One could envision that in the future, and that's you know almost certainly what will be the case at some point. But but to your point, 2023, we're nowhere near there, and this still is a, a big challenge for patients and providers. It's quite interesting. So again, back to our listeners, we are talking about uh, you know biliary strictures, and Dr. Almanzer's and the guideline clearly divides them into for drainage diagnosis as well as extra and intrahepatic strictures who are malignant versus not. So switching gears, we've been talking a lot of malignant strictures. For benign strictures, it's interesting that you recommended fully covered self-explanatory SEMS rather than multiple plastic stents in, in the management of this. Could you explain the thinking for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So to be clear, um, what drove this recommendation of preferring or, or for advising in favor of a fully covered self-expanding metal stent versus multiple plastic stents in parallel was not the efficacy of treating the stricture and limiting you know, the risk of recurrence in the future, because those two modalities are essentially equivalent for those endpoints. Really, the value of the fully covered self-expanding metal stent is um, its efficiency. In the sense that, you know, typically when you when when we traditionally treated biliary strictures, we would, you know, do the ERCP, dilate the stricture, place one stent usually at the time of the index ERCP, bring the patient back 
a few months later, a few weeks later, dilate some more, try to add additional stents and upsize by, you know, adding as many stents as possible in parallel, and then continuing that process over the course of the year. Now, in contrast, a fully covered self-expanding metal stent can be placed during the index ERCP and it's and achieves its full sort of radial expansion, you know, within a few days or maybe within 24 hours of the ERCP. And so you achieve that radial expansion and that radial force relatively quickly. And then these stents are typically approved for a relatively prolonged dwell time, uh, you know, at least for chronic pancreatitis. And so the stent can be left in place for an extended period of time and does not require routine exchange. And so overall, it's a more efficient pathway toward, you know, resolving the stricture. And so, you know, we felt like, you know, the, the value to the patient and to the healthcare system of avoiding repeated procedures and perhaps even just having the index ERCP and another ERCP six months later to remove the stent, that justified a recommendation, even though we're very clear in the document that outcomes are, are believed to be equivalent. Having said that, there, there are certain situations in which, um, in which plastic stents are still, you know, very much uh, indicated and preferred and and we go into those details in the document. I think the recommendations for approaching extra hepatic strictures due to malignancy are quite pragmatic. And you know, we often need to get surgeons involved and we want to obviously get a clear sense of when do you think our listeners and our readers should involve the surgeons earlier, sooner rather than later. It's interesting because the drainage of extrahepatic biliary strictures, including malignant strictures, for the most part has become endoscopic, except in order to treat the cancer. So when patients need to undergo a resection for curative intent, then obviously that brings with it, you know, inherently biliary drainage. But the trend is that relatively few patients are going directly to surgery, even for anatomically resectable pancreatic cancers. And so many of those patients, either as part of research protocols or not, are getting neoadjuvant chemoradiation. And so, of course, the surgeon should be involved up front as soon as the diagnosis is made. But often we end up providing endoscopic drainage to make sure that they are in good shape to tolerate chemotherapy until their operation, which is typically, you know, six, eight, 12 weeks later. Thank you. And very briefly, what in your mind are some unanswered questions that need to be addressed? I, you briefly touched upon the AI, which was very fascinating. But any other questions that you think need to be addressed as a matter of urgency or, you know, importance? Yeah, I mean, I, so yeah, the indeterminate biliary structure is arguably the most important of that, uh, of those, and, and we discussed AI. I think for extrahepatic biliary strictures, we have a lot of clarity, knock on wood. I think the, the, the more controversial areas are the hyalur strictures, and they're still important unanswered questions around, you know, percutaneous versus endoscopic drainage as a first intervention. That's an area that's near and dear to my heart, having trial, tried to launch a large randomized control trial that was unfortunately unsuccessful. And then, you know, other matters pertaining to endobiliary ablation for cancers and what the true role of that will be and so forth. But I, I, think, I think the bulk of progress in the upcoming years will will likely involve the malignant hyalur stricture. Thank you so much, Dr. Almanzer, and thank you to the entire writing group for this excellent guideline. You can get this podcast as well as please read the guideline in the print edition of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.